When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another special guest with me, Dr. Camden Busey. Uh, we're going to be talking all sorts of reformed stuff, so that's going to be great. And uh, and Lord willing, we'll get into some Kyle Rahner, which is not reformed, but you'll see. Um, I'm really excited for this guest. Just wanted to give a shout out to the Patreon supporters, uh, everyone uh, over on YouTube, all you guys uh, appreciate the support. Uh, if you like this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts, give me a five-star review, and uh, leave us a comment. But uh, enough selling myself here. Let's get, let's bring Camden in. Camden, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Oh, you're most welcome. Uh, thanks, thanks for the invitation, and I'm looking forward to talking. Watch some episodes uh, in preparation. I'm really digging it. I don't know oh, if thanks. I've ever said that phrase before, but uh, <laughs> that's how I feel at the moment. That's awesome. Well, dude, I've been listening to the Reform Forum for years, so this is a, this is an honor to have you on. For those who don't know, uh, man, what? So you're executive director of Reform mm-hmm. Forum. Uh, that's a great place. If if anyone's listening right now, like go go check that out. But what is it for for people who don't know? <laughs> well, uh, it started as a just a hobby with some friends of mine when I moved to Philadelphia uh, back in 2007 to. Um, start at Westminster Seminary. I uh, met up with some friends, uh, made some new friends, and we started having what I thought were interesting conversations that my former self would have appreciated listening to. Because I didn't have a whole lot of um, reformed influence or anyone really, a whole lot of folks to talk to, certainly not from a confessionally reformed standpoint. Mm -hmm. So podcasts were very early on, but I was, I used to work in the tech space at Caterpillar down in Peoria, Illinois. And so I was always had my fingers in some tech stuff and I listened to tech podcasts and I thought, Hey, uh, I've got some microphones. It'd be interesting to record some conversations Hmm. and, uh, put them out for other people who might not be able to talk about these things. So we started as a, as a podcast, uh, back in January, 2008 was the first episode we put out. And, uh, since then we've, you know, uh, incorporated as a nonprofit back in 2010, April Fool's Day of all days. Some <laughs> some of the people might not like what we do would would find that appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, we uh, we're a nonprofit organization seeking to advance Christian education. Our mission comes from Colossians 1:28. We are seeking to support the church mm-hmm. in presenting every person mature in Christ, and the way that we do that is through podcasts, uh, books, other publications, online resources, events online courses that we have, but they're all coming from a decidedly kind of a theological tradition and an homage to Gerhardus Voss's biblical theology. 
mm-hmm. and uh, Cornelius Van Til's approach to uh, revelational epistemology and apologetics. So um, we don't view those two guys as as uh, saints any more than anyone else is yeah. a is a saint, the general office of a believer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are greatly indebted to their theological contributions, and uh, we believe that they they teach what the system of doctrine th- that's contained within Scripture most yeah. faithfully. So those are our guys, and uh, we're trying to do theology and uh, following in their footsteps. I love that. That's awesome. Well, so you, you worked at, at uh, CAT down here in Peoria. Mm-hmm. Are you from Illinois originally? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, all right, man. Maybe the only reason I'm still here. I don't. Okay. It's not, it's not the uh, ideal uh, situation. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, our state has been having a tough time the last five, ten years. Yeah. And um, but I grew up uh, just south of Rockford, so okay. in a small town named uh, Stillman Valley, Illinois. Sure. Yeah, I know Stillman Valley. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah. Where did you uh, grow up? Maybe I grew up in, in uh, out in Lombard, right next to uh, Wheaton, the the old promised land there. Yeah, man. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Not, and, not too far away. Yeah. Stillman yeah. is um, a tiny town. When I was there, the population was about 850. The population can't be more than twelve or 1,300 at the moment, but I still uh, find some pride in the fact that there are no stoplights still to oh, this day. Right. Instead, of, but we have a, at one point had three or four pubs and, uh, we do have curbs, but no, no stoplights. So small <laughs> town. That's my, that's yeah. my upbringing. Well, I, I know all the random towns in Illinois because of wrestling, you know, you yeah. just hear, you hear people's names, you hear these towns and, oh yeah, sure. I know that. And I went to NIU. So out yeah. that way. And I had a lot of friends that went to NIU. Yeah. Um, some relatives too. I didn't make it there, but, um, yeah, Stillman had a, they had a, always had a holiday invitational. My dad was a wrestler. I did, didn't wrestle. I wrestled from fourth grade up until freshman year of high school. And that's the one thing I quit. Hmm. I rest, I quit freshman year wrestling. I couldn't handle it uh, psychologically because I was a freshman, but it, it wasn't the wrestling that I couldn't handle. It was the, the coach was a banker. And so practices were at 7.30 p.m. Oh, nice. So we used to have to go to school, then go home, yeah. and then come back, and That's then go brutal. home. And, and I just – it was too much because I played baseball and football as well, and I just okay. needed that break. And once I – once that coach left, you know, and years later, it just never got back on. So it's kind of a, a regret in my life because wrestling is such yeah. an underappreciated sport. And I think um, you learn so much just about physiology and mm-hmm. even physics and leverage and all that sort of thing that totally. I love wrestling. I still go to meets and watch and try to get my kids into it. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's one of those things I think doesn't get uh, appreciated and mentioned that much. So here's our uh, apologetic for wrestling. Best. This is the best, man. This is the best <laughs> podcast already. Yeah, this is great. I was just thinking about the other day, man. There's there's some countries where you know wrestling's their main sport, and mm-hmm. you know, you go to Mongolia and uh, you go through like yeah. a, a traffic. So I went to Mongolia on a, a trip with Athletes in Action, and uh, they they have like still some kind of corruption. Sorry, Mongolians out there, I love you guys, but there's still some corruption, some corrupt uh, traffic stops. But all you do is you show them your cauliflower ear and they're yeah. like, yeah, okay. You know, and let you it's through. A badge you're of a wrestler. Honor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, there's a lot of pride in that. People look at that as some gross deformity, but yeah. among wrestlers and, and uh, folks that are into jujitsu and whatnot, that's a badge of honor that then you wear that proud. Yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> I love that. This is great. Uh, well, getting back to, to reform form, dude, sure. when, you, when you started, you said that, uh, you know, it's just you and a couple of friends. Do you have any idea that this would become, you'd be the executive director, this would be your full-time no. gig? Any any idea about that? No, it's surreal. Uh, we we didn't start anything with that intent. We honestly were just appreciating 
talking to folks and there was nothing like this at the time. Things existed on the radio. Um, the, you know, White Horse Inn is very well known. Mm-hmm. Renewing Your Mind from Ligonier and R.C. Yeah. Sproul's ministry was uh, obviously a big deal. But there wasn't anything, to my knowledge, that, you know, was more hitting a kind of a seminary audience or even beyond. And yeah. so as as much as I'm indebted to White Horse Inn and Ligonier and appreciative of them at the time when I'd gotten to seminary, you know, we're, we're looking forward trying to chew on some stuff that's a little past the adult Sunday school level, right. but that also got me into uh, more of Voss and Vantillion variety of things. And Ligonier is not shy at all about, you know, some of their folks are a little bit interested in Vantill, but generally mm-hmm. speaking throughout the years, they've been quite opposed to the apologetic right. um, tack of Vantill. Even more recently, Keith Matheson published a piece in Table Talk that was, you know, a whole tone. Maybe. That thing was long. <laughs> Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's a different, different thing. So I love to join hands and support what they're doing there. But we had no idea. We were just trying to fill a niche. We we're scratching our own itch, to be honest. Yeah. And then it turned into people listening. And then uh, wasn't a few months later, we started to ask other people to come on the program as a guest and it just kept going. We just yeah. kept doing it every week and it grew. And then it then it got to the point where we had to figure out what we're going to do with it in, in the sense of, Oh, this is becoming um, enough work. We got to fig and, and maybe requiring certain expenses in terms of hosting, in terms of maybe needing some equipment here and there, not a lot, but uh, we got to the point where it, it, we saw it was wise perhaps to incorporate as a, as a 501 C three. And that was a whole other thing and, you know, requires a whole lot of other infrastructure. Yeah. Right. And then, uh, you know, it's been a surprise. It's been a wild ride. We're we're really excited about the things we got in store coming out and um, just trying to fill in a gap where we yeah. see there's a need. And as so long as people are, are blessed and continue to benefit, we'll keep doing what we do. Yeah, amen, I have man. no idea what the Lord's got in store, but as long as he keeps giving us work to do, I'm happy to do it. And uh, we're just at it. You know, yeah. with that mindset. Yeah. Well, dude, I've been so blessed by a lot, um, a lot of the podcast episodes. Uh, and, you know, anything on, on Bobbing's been so great, uh, all of them. But I'm trying to think like, what? So, so other people, classically, you know, radio programs, and then you think of podcasts, and it's like, well, anyone can have a podcast in their basement. You know, I'm in my office here. But right. What do you, was that ever weird for you to talk about like, yeah, I, I run this podcast. Did you ever feel like a sense of like, you know, we're down here or, or oh, yeah. how do you think, yeah. How do you think through like what the podcast is, the media? I still even? deal with that uh, in the sense of people, um, people, you know, they have a very confused look on, on their face when they find out what I do. Or if I visit a church, if I'm doing pulpit supply somewhere and they say, yeah. so what do you run it? You do a podcast. At least now people know the word, right? but even a few years ago, people had no clue what it was. And you know, the simplest thing is basically to say, it's like an internet radio show, but it's right. on demand, whatever. Even that is a bit confusing to folks, but there, there still is kind of this disdain, I guess, or, or some, I, I don't know if people intend it, but it's, I, I recently I got one, which was, so you do a, what do you do? You do this podcast and yeah. And you do that full time. It's like, <laughs> well, you do other things too, you know, <laughs> and that you're busy all week. I'm like, yeah, I got more work than I can manage, you know, with all the stuff going on at the organization, but it's just confusing to folks. Yeah. 
so it's changed over time. It's become a little more culturally um, known. It's not as strange, but there's still this flavor of you're weird. You know, it's this, it, it's, it, it, there's this sensation or this thought that it's not serious or that it's, uh, <laughs> that it's um, somehow, you know, a subclass type of thing to do yeah. uh, or, or what it's just strange. Yeah. And people, people don't know, I guess that you know, the, the power of it in the sense of its effectiveness, it's a strange medium and, and it, there's a lot of value in it for the same reason people like talk radio, you get to know, the people, but you, it's, it's an odd form of information transmission and learning. And it's not learning in the sense of going to a classroom and having a lecture or reading a book, obviously mm-hmm. Disc, discourse, uh, discursive that way, but in the sense of you learn through conversation and picking things up. Yeah. So I listen to a ton of podcasts myself of, yeah, on same. a wide range of things, partly why I'm attracted to, to your particular program is just the, the potpourri kind of nature of it. Mm-hmm. it I, that's fun because that's yeah. how we learn. That's how we talk. It's how we discuss. You, you bounce around and then you start to find odd connections between things. Mm-hmm. And in a way you're kind of enlightened by that, um, by finding the, the serendipity and the surprise in being a curious person. I think yeah. at the end of the day, I'm just a curious person yeah. and, uh, you know, Lord's called me to gospel ministry, but, my curiosity, although it's mostly focused in theology, it's it's in all sorts of right. wild stuff. And uh, I appreciate this type of, this renaissance of media because it allows curious folks like us to to be exposed to things we maybe yes. never would have even had an opportunity to see before. Yeah, dude, amen to that. And I think uh, speaking of, you know, ministering the gospel, uh, being curious is some of the best way to do that. You know, so someone comes up to you and, is like, yeah, I work at Caterpillar. Like, oh, dude, what do you work on? You know, like, right. I, I know a little bit about that. And you just go in on different things. And even if you know nothing, if you're curious, you can ask them good questions and get somewhere. And one of the great things about Van Til and, you know, that, that flavor of theology is looking at everything as an argument for God. You know, everything presupposes God. Everything's connected because God, it's God's world. Looking at the organic motif, you know, anything like that. Like, it's all interconnected. And so my goal, I can get that back to God and I don't want to be manipulative in the conversation, but being naturally curious and being a Christian, it's going to go back there. Amen. That's exactly my thought and attraction to Van Til to begin with, because it is in a sense, a comprehensive understanding of, of the world. And so when, when Van Til's talking about a worldview, that's what he is getting at. He's not speaking of it from the idealist uh, notion or even a postmodern perspective. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there are a lot of critics of Vantil that have a knee-jerk reaction to the, to the word worldview. Mm-hmm. But for Vantil, it just has to do with the fact that the triune God of the Bible is created and continues to sustain the world, mm-hmm. and that any fact, any true thing, any existent, anything in the world is sustained by God, and God knows all those things. Yeah. He's, he has comprehensive knowledge. And we come to know those things by thinking God's thoughts after him, but yet as creatures. So everything we know, everything we encounter, everything we discover in the world is already known and sustained by the Lord. We can't learn things he doesn't already know. Yeah. And we, th- we think 
after him to, and therefore there's an ethics to knowledge. There's a, always a, a covenantal dimension to knowledge in the sense that we're related to God. And um, it's just a, it's a liberating way to approach apologetics because yeah. you don't have to get somebody on your train of thought regarding some line of, of evidence. Mm-hmm. You don't have to um, get them to care about some syllogism, you know, in terms of like the classical approach of the five ways, but you find out where they are. You find a point of contact ultimately in the image of God. And if you're talking to a human, you have a point of contact. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And then you, you work from whatever they know or whatever they care about. Yeah. And you can, like you say, find your way to God because everything is connected to him. Yeah. I just love that approach. And that's really at the heart of what Van Til is getting at. Yeah. I don't dude, understand why people are so opposed to that. Dude, why they- I was just going to say, man, there's, <laughs> I had one of my guests, I won't name him, but we were talking afterwards and they're like, yeah, there's kind of a, a Van Til derangement syndrome. Uh, and it's, it's true. It's, you just hear Van Til and you go off and it's like, well, have you, have you read Van Til? They go, no, but you know, I, I read some things about him. Like, well, I read some quotes here out of context. Yeah. And it's like, look, I know, I know you, you can't read everything. I, I right. haven't read all the church dogmatics of Bart and I don't like him, you know, mm. but <laughs> you should read something or at least talk to someone who's pro Van Til, you yeah. know, before you make this conclusion. I've talked to Bardians all, all day, you know, and yeah. yeah derangement syndrome, man. No, there are real differences that people have different approaches. I don't, I don't mean to say that Van Til encompasses all the different approaches right. and it, approaches. And if everyone actually read him and understood him, that they would agree. They wouldn't. Yes. Now that's just life. Right. And, but at the same time, I, I, I agree that often the Van Til people despise is not what Van Til was trying to say. Yeah. But also maybe Van Til wasn't uh, always the best writer in every places, but yeah. in every place, but, uh, I think if you read him on his own terms and uh, he's just tremendous, Yeah, you know, everyone can learn something from him. We don't have to hate the guy. (laughs) Right. Seriously. Well, one of the, one of my favorite things about reform forum is uh, you, I don't actually, I wanted to ask you about your audience, like who you think your audience is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when I read a book and I'm very excited about it, I'll read some Voss, I'll read some Van Til, I'll read some uh, Bavink and there's no one to talk about it with. I'm, hey, I just, right. what, do you, what do we think about this? And then I go on to Reform Forum and you got a podcast episode where you're interviewing the author and it's like, I get to be in that. And uh, yeah, that's the point. Yeah. And it's like, that's finally, great. okay, someone to talk. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not crazy. That is what he was saying. Or, <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't think that, you know, and I think of uh, with Reform Forum, I'm, there's this meme, what it's like to listen to podcasts and there's this kid eating ice cream and he's sitting next to a poster of, of girls laughing uh, on an ad. <laughs> Have you, have you seen this one where he's like laughing no, as if one. he's in the ad with them, but he's not, oh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm part of the, part of the crew here, but this is our first time meeting, but that that's something that's been so helpful with that in mind though. Who, who, who is your audience? Because you are going deeper than the, you know, popular level. Let's, let's bring all the cookies down. Um, but wh- where are you at? What's your conception of like your audience uh, mm-hmm. for reform forum? That's a, that's in some ways kind of a difficult question. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Um, And it's something that we frequently ask ourselves and discuss as a faculty or as a board, the folks here. Um, To begin with, I would say that our our audience is not defined by theological ability or education to begin with. That comes into who we seek to address first, just as in terms of a pragmatic aspect. Let me explain. Uh, So, we do hit a seminary and post-seminary audience. So the, the people that listen to Christ the Center, for example, mm-hmm. are typically 
fairly highly theologically educated and they're good readers and they they're learned in that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it does stretch beyond the typical adult Sunday school level that, that many other organizations are targeting. But that doesn't mean those are the only people we want to address. That's just a matter of, of chronology. It's because there was nobody serving those people in the reform space when we began that we ended up growing. And so our flagship program, Christ the Center, that podcast, tends toward that group because that's just how it has been. Yeah. But we are seeking to do other things for other people. Mm-hmm. A lot of our online courses are targeted towards adult Sunday school level. And we have a, you know, kind of a roadmap, what I call kind of an, a knowledge map in terms of what we want to fill out. And if you think about it in terms of a, like a matrix or a, or a graph across the X axis, we might have all the different theological topics or categories, church mm-hmm. history, systematics, apologetics, New Testament, Old Testament, all that stuff. And then you can think of, you know, on the vertical axis, the Y axis, ability level. And that can go all the way from postdoc all the way down to, you know, three-year-olds, four-year-olds. I'd love to have resources for everybody, but it's going to take time to get there. So we're kind of hitting our our niche at the moment and slowly trying to branch out. But here's to answer the bigger question. Mm -hmm. So who are we, who is the audience? For us, it's, it's obviously folks that want to learn and, uh, and go deeper in their knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But we're seeking to do so, again, from the theological standpoint of a Reformed biblical theology, a redemptive historical approach to Scripture, as evidenced and exemplified by Gerhardus Voss. We're trying to develop that. And then also the thorough, thoroughgoing epistemology and approach to apologetics and defense of the faith. But it's really just a comprehensive understanding of, right. of humanity in, in uh, relation to God, the covenantal theology mm-hmm. of Cornelius Van Til. So as long as people are interested and learning and coming to see how that theology is um, flowing forth from Scripture, then those are the people we're seeking to serve, whether yeah. they're three years old or a postdoc. But uh, not everyone's going to like that. You know, right. it's not every dispensationalist is going to appreciate or be convinced by our arguments or our theology. We understand that, but mm-hmm. we're seeking to present every person mature in Christ, understanding that's the church's task. We're seeking to support the church in that task. And uh, we believe that to be mature in Christ, you should know these things. (laughs) So we want to take people from cradle to grave insofar as we're able to, as servants in God's kingdom, supporting the church and helping people to to know Jesus better. So it's kind of, in a sense, what everyone's trying to do in, in terms of discipleship. You're trying to get people to know their Savior better. And how do we know how we're supposed to do that? It's from the Bible. Yeah. We just believe that the Voss and Van Til are two really good examples of teaching what the Bible teaches. Yeah, man. I love that. Uh, it's so cool to see how it's a, it's a movement and how it's grown, how God's blessed it, and how, yeah, they're the uh, yeah Christ the Center had this audience, but now you guys are branching out. And you got classes on Van Til. You got different courses going on, reading groups yeah. with Voss. It's been mm-hmm. awesome. It's it's been awesome to see, and it's really cool that uh, man you you're like the pod father because you 
you know, you were like two years before Joe Rogan started. Isn't that uh, wild? Yeah, I, I'm waiting for my Spotify deal. But, That's right. Uh, <laughs> Soon, yeah, after this one, maybe. I mean, I'd even take like a Four Sigmatic or Onnit uh, uh, sponsorship at this <laughs> point, whatever. I want some of those uh, kettlebells he has with the gorilla yeah. heads. Dude, yeah. seriously, they're like a thousand dollars. They're so expensive. Yeah. Uh, well, so one one thing that's that's I'm sure you probably wouldn't say this because you're so humble and stuff. But when you when you uh, interview people, but you have your own interests as well, sometimes it could be frustrating. Um, I'm not going to put that on you. For me, a little bit where I want to be a contender. Like I want to. Hey, I got some ideas too. Let's talk. It's not just about you. Um, and I'm mm. my guests are great, so my guests don't do that to me, but. You have a doctorate, you have done your own work, you've thought through some stuff. And so I wanted to give you some time to, to talk through your ideas. You did this for Reform Forum, but you did a lot of work on Karl Rahner. Yeah. And it's turned into a book and Great Thinkers not showing up. There we go. Karl Rahner, Great Thinkers. Uh, and dude, I was so excited when I heard your interview. Mm. Uh, was it Tipton? Some, someone interviewed you on the podcast. Kind of. They kind of turned the tables on me a little yeah. bit, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but you, you'd said something that struck a chord with me because when I first, uh, heard about Ronner, I was like, dude, I don't know about Ronner. I don't know. Yeah. Right. And then I heard him talk about transcendental language. You're like, let's go, let's see yeah. this. And then I found out what he meant by it. And I was like, dang it. <laughs> and it was kind of the same, the same kind of thing as you, or at least what you said in the podcast. So, um, man, how, how'd you get into Carl Ronner? That's a great story. I think, uh, maybe cause it's my biography, but, uh, mm. I, before I get into that, it's, yeah. There's always a temptation just to connect a few dots for folks because we were talking about the medium of the podcast. Number one, there's always a temptation for people who have ideas to share those ideas. So, you know, Hmm. I, I, you know, I'll I'll be the first to confess. You always want to be humble. And when you're having a guest on, let them speak and restrain yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's always a, a battle for folks that are, that enjoy conversation. You know, that's, but that's the nature. If you, if you know, but, if people are watching or listening to your podcast, then, you know, they want your input to some point. Mm-hmm. Occasionally we get critics that don't like how much I talk or mm. the, 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 the host talk, and they would prefer it to be more of an NPR interview uh, where you yeah. ask a, sh- a brief question and then let them run with it. I appreciate the desire for that, but that's not what a podcast is. Right. A dude. podcast is a conversation. Yes. And so when I'm listening to Rogan, I listen maybe to once a month. I don't know. It depends on the guest for me. Right. Totally. Totally. Or whomever else I'm dipping in to hear the guest interact with these people. If mm-hmm. it's a panel or, or that uh, podcast host. And so I just want to put that out there in the public. That's how I view of a podcast. Uh, that's how I view a podcast. Yes. Other people might not view a podcast that way. That's fine. But in yeah. terms of the podcast we're trying to produce, that's what, we think about them. Okay. That's so great. You brought up NPR because that, that is, that's like, that's why it is different than radio. You know, it's yeah. not, I'm not putting on a, a suit right now and I'm not just my 10 questions. And what do you think about what's your favorite exactly. ice cream? Sometimes yeah. those are not even recorded with the people. I don't know if people understand how right. radio works often uh, syndicated radio or, or, or people like an NPR where you might have an NPR station in various cities, the guest comes on and reads and gives answers to a predefined set of questions. Then the host in the various cities goes and reads the questions and then the producer stitches the podcast or the, the interview together. So it's not in conversation because it can't be a conversation. 
no. in those in those cases because the two people actually never talked to each other. Yeah, this is crazy. It sounds like they did. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. just no good. You want to hear questions coming from certain people's points of view and certain people's experiences. So, right. you know, if if somebody's coming on Christ the Center, I'm going to ask them questions that arise from their book, but there are also questions that I have an interest in or questions that might have arisen from my personal experience or my research. Right. And that's why I can also listen to the same guest on multiple podcasts and, and hopefully it'll be a much different experience and you learn new things each time. Yeah. There's, there's a point to that. So I guess that's a little justification to repeat some of the Ronner stuff, even though we talked about it on the other podcast, because this is unique Mm -hmm. because you're asking and we're having a conversation on this. Ronner was, Ronner, I was unknown to me other than a brief reference uh, in a distance course I took with a guy named Harvey Kahn. Mm-hmm. Harvey Kahn was deceased at the time I took this course. <laughs> so I took a, a distance course through Westminster called um, Missionary Encounter with the World. And it was basically kind of a, a course on uh, contextualization in, in uh, missionary experience, but he was heavy on philosophy and history of ideas, which is what I appreciated about this particular course. Mm -hmm. And they sent, they mailed to me tapes, literal cassette tapes. And I had to dig up a, 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 an old boom box. And then I, I uh, exported the uh, headphone jack into the computer and recorded it digitally. So I could listen on a more modern thing. (laughs) But in, in there, he mentioned uh, Carl Rahner and Rahner's theology of the anonymous Christian, Mm because it's a huge factor in um, world religions and thinking about pluralism and inclusivism. Rahner's not a pluralist, but he's an inclusivist. And uh, so is basically Roman Roman Catholicism. Right. Uh, so the, I had only heard of Rahner uh, from, from his anonymous Christianity. Excuse me. Um, but uh, when I attended seminary, uh, you'd read about him here and there when you're interacting with the doctrine of the Trinity, because he's yeah. also big in that sphere. Rahner's rule. Yeah, exactly. Which he didn't come up with. And he's the first to say in his book on the Trinity, but everyone ascribes it to him. And basically he's the popularizer of it. Mm. But it's the axiom that the for him, what he says is the imminent Trinity is the economic Trinity and vice versa. Mm-hmm. What he means in that regard is God in himself is the same God as he is for us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no difference and uh, in a sense, he's basically eternalizing the economy. I mean, yeah. get into that maybe in a minute, but yeah. um, I, it wasn't until uh, the doctrine of Christ class that was taught by Lane Tipton during my MDiv studies that he um, approached, he had an assignment at the end of that course where we had to study a modern Christology. And uh, if we wanted on the final uh, we could replace, if I get this assignment correct, we could replace one of the uh, essay questions with um, writing about this Christology, you know, write a paper on it or, or basically write, that would be the question for the final. So it makes sense that I, you know, am I going to uh, do a, an essay question I haven't seen or one that I can prepare for? Right, so, totally. Totally, yeah. We I uh, read and, and studied on Karl Rahner uh, on his doctrine of, of Christ. And um it was so fascinating to me because when I was reading Rahner, he would ask the same questions that Cornelius Van Til would ask and often use similar vocabulary, mm-hmm. but he would come up with just diametrically opposed <laughs> answers. And it just, I kept wondering, like, how could this be? 
How could it be that the that the answers to these questions are just completely opposite, which that piqued my curiosity. Mm-hmm. And then the further I dug, the more I realized how influential Rahner was in modern Roman Catholicism. In fact, uh, some people have even called him the Holy Ghost writer of Vatican II. Yeah. And if you know anything about Catholic uh, history of the 20th century, Vatican II is, you know, one of the biggest events, not just of the last century, but maybe the last few centuries, at least going back to 1879. Mm-hmm. And, and yet nobody from the Reformed from my reform circles, other than Robert Strimple, who taught at Westminster in Philadelphia and then moved out and taught at Westminster in, in Escondido, California, had ever dealt with him. Hmm. And even Strimple had published much. or uh, And so he'd done tremendous work on Rahner, but there'd been no sustained critiques. Uh, and so... Uh, Lane, Dr. Tipton encouraged me to look into that. And then as I had opportunity to continue on and go into doctoral studies, I I figured he would be a convenient person to study because not only is he such an influential feature or figure, and not only uh, is there really nobody that has dealt with him from my confessional standpoint, Mm -hmm. but also he's a very good figurehead or placeholder. So by addressing Rahner, you're not just addressing one figure. Yeah. You're you're through him able to access and to critique by extension all of or at least an overwhelming majority of modern Roman Catholicism. No, is that so that's is that why I started of, there. Well sorry, is that because yeah. of his his influence or because he um I would think it's because he was so influential, but maybe it's because he was a, a man of his time and that's an amazing question. Nobody's asked me that question. So congratulations <laughs> to you, Parker. All right. Great. Uh, I appreciate that, Penzi. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's, um, I wrestled with that. And the conclusion I came to, I have an appendix in my dissertation, which is not in the book. Okay. Partly because it's not that good. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the, my conclusion there is I, I think Ronner had significant influence on the, assembly the the uh the vatican council but i think also he is just part of the milieu like he is a man of his times he is embodying that zeitgeist and he he happened to be somebody who put voice to what was going on so there are many other theologians doing similar work as runner so it's it's kind of chicken and egg yeah. And I think maybe, you know, as most most things, it's probably a bit of both, right? Yeah. It's not just all of one or all the other. But one way or the other, you could definitely see his fingerprints on the conclusions of the council. Yeah. Whether that's because people were reading Ronner or listening to Ronner and um, you know, being convinced by his writings, or it just so happened that they came to similar conclusions and then he was the one who had his name on the books. Right. You know, that's that that maybe is a question for somebody that's beyond my pay grade. I don't know the uh, history of the council well enough to say. Yeah. Well, it makes sense because if, if uh, everyone was, was, you know, first council kind of theology and then Ronner comes along, he probably is not convincing people, but because of the, uh, this is a word I I picked up from reform form or a phrase because of his seats in Laban. uh, Sitting in life. Yeah. 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 The, they, he was able to be more influential, uh, I want, man, I want to talk, I want to talk Ronner's rule. Cause that one, mm-hmm. that one comes up a lot actually mm-hmm. uh, at Ted's uh, and I want to tra- talk transcendental stuff. 
Okay. But first, just maybe briefly, um, the anonymous Christian stuff is that yes. is that still is that still going on? Is that still? Oh yeah. I, okay. Oh yeah. Well, let me explain it because yeah, I think please. it's genius, in, but it's horrible. Okay. Number one, almost nothing in Ronner is is going to be spiritually edifying. However, if you understand him and you get into the questions he's asking, yeah. then it is quite instructive, and it's in a sense motivating for us as as um you know protestants and mm-hmm. confessional protestants at that particularly to 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 um realize that that uh you know our theology should be addressing issues Rahner is what what's called kind of an occasional theologian or an occasional writer so he has in his bibliography over 4000 items to his credit so Dang. his cv is insanely long yeah but a lot of that is because he wrote occasionally, basically like the old formal version of a blogger, you know, ah. he would write a lot, you know, what we would write as a blog. And imagine if you wrote a couple posts a week for 50 years, yeah, what your production might look like. He mm-hmm. did that except prior to the internet. <laughs> so a lot of his stuff, it's all over the place. Thousands and thousands of short articles on a variety of topics, yeah. but, but for him, in his case, they were published and now all collected. You can get them in his, his collected works, uh, which you can find at any, you know, Trinity's got them. Yeah. I do not own them. I'll, I'll receive a donation. If anyone <laughs> wants, to, wants to send me the same look of work, I'll take them. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, Ronner's whole theology it's very, I find it to be organic. Uh, the Catholics really recoil if you say that Rahner is a systematic theologian. Okay. They don't like hearing that because in that regard, in the Catholic um, taxonomy, systematic theology or dogmatic theology has a very defined meaning mm-hmm. and a defined approach with the it's way that you do theology. Very Rahner formal, does, right? Exactly. And, yeah. and, and traditional, there's a you know, set topic, set ways in which you write, set yeah. uh, approach. And Ronard is none of that. Okay. He addresses those topics. But when I say he's very systematic, I don't mean that. I mean that his thought, though, is all connected. Yeah. And whenever you're looking at his anthropology or his theology proper, his ecclesiology, it all fits. It, it, it's congruent, mm-hmm. organic in, from his standpoint, from his presuppositions. So the, the doctrine of the anonymous Christian flows forth from his theology of man, his anthropology, theological anthropology, and from his theology of, of revelation, and in a sense also his ecclesiology. But it's also connected to his theology proper. But the basic idea is that man as made in the image of God is like a radio uh, in which God is always communicating himself. Mm-hmm. He's broadcasting on a frequency. And human beings are the unique creature that has the capacity to tune into that frequency and receive what God is sending out. Mm-hmm. So human beings everywhere all have this capacity and all of them can tap into that frequency, whether or not they know where it's coming from yeah. or mm-hmm. personally know with, you know, with explicit knowledge right. where it's coming from or who's sending it. And so for Ronner, what God is communicating is not information but he's actually communicating himself in a gracious self-communication. It's a gift of, of his own being, in a mm. sense. 
of himself. And then there are people throughout the world who recognize that their limitations, their need, they, they stretch out towards the beyond the horizon of their existence and, and, and realize their utter dependency in the face of, um, of this mystery uh, that is beyond their limitations. You know, yeah. this is starting to sound very, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. too. Yeah. Exactly. It, yeah. it is very Schleiermachian in that sense, but what they come to realize and receive in that moment is God himself, even though they might attribute it to um, Allah or to, you know, the Hindu gods or to some form of atheism. Basically, Rahner would say that anyone out there can receive God's grace, in fact, does receive God's grace through the things that have been made. Because they're a human, they receive God's gift of himself, but not everyone does so explicitly or thematically. Mm-hmm. They, there can be people who are saved. In fact, he would say, I would imagine most, if not, you know, an overwhelming majority of people, even in other world religions are saved. Mm-hmm. They're saved by Jesus Christ, even if they don't know it. <laughs> so that's the anonymous Nine. Christian. And that's the difference between pluralism and inclusivism. Mm-hmm. The Roman Catholics are not pluralists. They don't believe that all proposed roads of uh, to salvation are equal, they would say, no, those religions are false religions. However, God meets and can bless the people by his grace in those other communities and contexts, even if they don't know where that grace is coming from. They're yeah. mistaken that Allah is blessing them, but Jesus right. Christ nevertheless can meet them and save them uh, yeah. through their ignorance it's a it's a bit like um the last battle maybe um you know c.s lewis and mm. you know uh which what you've done towards tash i'll attribute to me uh it it seems a, a little bit like that right and and yeah it kind of messes with the gospel i think uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot yeah. i mean i guess on a sliding scale inclusivism is better than pluralism but it's mm. still uh, contrary to the Bible. I mean, yeah. there are many people that will come to our Lord at the end of days and say, Lord, Lord, and, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Right. And those are people that are literally saying Lord, Lord. <laughs> yeah. They're not anonymous. Yeah. Right. And yeah. how many examples in another teaching of scripture can we multiply to that effect? I mean, right. we don't need to get into all of it, but that it's just not what the Bible teaches. Right. And at the end of the day, where are we getting, our understanding and our knowledge for many it's, you know, what do I feel? It's, it's autobiographical. It's, it's trying to be nice and kind and, and could God really be so cruel as Mm -hmm. to judge, you know, millions or billions of people. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's the problem. Yeah, man. Just uh, this is a, a finer point, and, and maybe Ronner hasn't thought through since he was an occasional uh, theologian. There, mm-hmm. when when you're receiving God, is is there like a, a what are you receiving? Is there a, it's not a relationship because it's anonymous. It's it, is it like theosis? Are you receiving God's being? Or are you like becoming? Or like what's what's going on there? D- does he talk about that? Well. Uh- that's in a sense what I'm trying to deal with in in parts of the book because I think this is a frontier, or at least um, there are questions to be answered. 
And these are kinds of things I'm trying to continue to study myself. And one hot topic lately is the doctrine of participation, mm-hmm. participation in, in the divine essence. Everyone's talking about that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm doing a lot of reading and a lot of my colleagues at Reform Forum are also reading on that subject and trying to understand things uh, from a reformed confessional standpoint. And then to do so in light of, you know, Thomas and, and others, mm-hmm. Ronner was a transcendental Thomist, perhaps not the best title, but uh, all Catholics, you know, of a type are forced to acknowledge the philosophy of Thomas because right. he's been named the official philosopher of the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. But then they, the transcendental Thomas sought to kind of transcend the limitations of Thomism by reading it, you know, in light of Kantian philosophy and other, uh, you know, enlightenment philosophies, critical mm-hmm. liberal philosophies. So uh, it's not a question that I would like to, that I haven't found in Rahner as much explicit material on the beatific vision okay. and theosis and interaction with, you know, Eastern Orthodox theologies in particular, as much as I would like. Mm-hmm. I mean, he touches on those, these topics, but at the heart of his whole theological program is the idea that God is giving a gift of himself. And that's mm-hmm. at the very center of the Trinity. It is what the Trinity is because the father, he, he's almost like a pat, patrocentric uh, Trinitarian theologian. In a mm-hmm. very, and he's, he's leaning a lot on the East in his way of his formulation of the Trinity. So the way I read him and where I'm critical of Rahner specifically on this is that the father is in a sense, he's not the only God, but he's, he's mostly God. And then the son and the spirit are self communications of the father. And then, so God, specifically the father, the unoriginate Mm -hmm. person of the Trinity gives the gift of himself, but he gives it in a twofold way. And so, his communication ultimately to mankind is the self-communication, but the mode by which that self-communication is transmitted is concrete, uh, historical and spiritual Hmm. spirit in the world. It's, it's Christ incarnate, but also the Holy spirit. So Jesus in the flesh is a manifestation like in a, in a sense, the perfect manifestation of God's communication of himself in time and in space and history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the Holy spirit is also always present and active as a communication of the father too. So is it theosis? That's a question perhaps to be investigated and developed in, you know, future works. I'd love to read. If guys want to write on that, I'd love to read it. Send it to me. Um, yeah. Let's, let's talk. But, um, at the bare minimum, we are receiving the gift of Christ and the spirit. And Rahner at times even likens this to a hypostatic union. Hmm. So when we receive that, and um, it's all tied up also with the Catholic ecclesiology, mm-hmm. because the church is the ongoing incarnation. Yeah, And uh, insofar as we're in the church and related to uh, the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, the 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 stand-in for the head of the Church. Right. We too are personally, hypostatically united to to God. In is a that sense. just in reference of of being uh, united with the Church, or is that also you know participating in uh, the elements as well? 
the elements of, of, of uh, the, the, sacraments. Like the sacraments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's in there too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, see, yeah. To, you start to see yeah. how it's all connected. Yeah, yeah. When we partake of the mass and that miracle, the Catholic understanding and the miracle of the, of transubstantiation, certainly, you know, okay. you're not just, you're feeding on Christ, but literally on the substance. Yeah. And also then as a result being changed, transformed yourself and, uh, and uh, receiving in a sense, I guess the being of God, you're being divinized, deified, but yeah. not in a, not in a way that you would be some sort of competitor to God or that you would ultimately merge with him so that there would never be any distinction between creator and creature. Okay. He would not want to say that, but it certainly borders on area that I'm very uncomfortable with right. <laughs> in terms of our, our relationship. But that's why I want to always read and understand through the lens of a covenant theology. Hmm. And through the image, a reformed doctrine of the of the image of God, which is yeah. very different. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm starting to see, uh, yeah, what what you were talking about with a systematic thinker, and uh, he seems like he's really smart, right? He seems like he's got oh this, yeah, he's this system, right? And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I just would disagree. But um, going on with uh, with Ronner's rule, um, so w what I've heard, and and it depends on who you hear it from, right? There's I think there's a lot of different takes on what Ronner's rule is. Some people think it's right. Some, think, some people think it's wrong. In my mind, it's like be, because Ronner um, didn't – he wanted us to actually know who God is. He wanted to say who God is in his actions is who God is in his being. And I wonder – I don't actually – was he contemporary with Bart? Because I wonder if he's reacting to Bart's kind of ineffability that God is wholly other and unknowable except through Christ. Is there any exchange going on between those two? Uh, he does interact with Bart, but it's typically on the doctrine of justification, and he's critical of Bart on uh, what he would call a juridical notion. That that's at least the translation. Rahner was writing in in uh, German, right? But uh, when I read the translations, he's always angry and and opposed to a juridical notion of justification. He he's, he sees Bart as kind of an example Protestant, ah. and um, I believe Bart interacted with Hans Kung on this this point as well on justification. And so I don't see, I haven't seen, doesn't mean it's not there, but I, I'm unaware of any extensive treatments of Rahner with Bart on the doctrine of God, but okay. it's a similar point. And people are reading Rahner, you know, in conversation with Bart as well. I would say the lightest okay. version, the people that don't see Rahner's rule as a, as is as big of a problem as I might, um, are reading it as purely an epistemological point yeah, or even lighter than that. One might say all Rahner is trying to argue is that we don't have two gods. Mm -hmm. The true God who is in himself is truly revealed in and through his economy, in his actions in time and space. If that's all Rahner is saying, then what is why does he have a rule named after him? <laughs> right. Because nobody is seeking to demonstrate that we have two different gods in, in our Trinitarian theology. Now, the, a, a stronger point might be, well, the only way we can know God is through his actions and mm -hmm. through his revelation, which is, in a sense, by definition, economy. Now, that's, a, that's, a, that's more along the Bardian lines or the, in the Bardian discussion. Bart would go even much, much deeper than that. Uh, in terms of his Christology. Right, yeah. But um, I don't think those are, 
Ronner is saying both of those things. Okay. But I think he's saying something even much stronger. For him, there's no difference between or distinction between God imminently with an A, God in himself, and God for us because the Son and the Spirit, by definition, are always self-communications of the Father. Yeah, it comes back to it. Yeah, right. Exactly. So in God's own being, in himself, he is communicating himself always. That is who God is. And then in time and space, we just have a concrete historical manifestation of what God is in and of himself from all eternity. For me, this always begs the question, well, who or what is God communicating to prior to creation, you end up with begging the question of panentheism. Yeah. You know, is God dependent? Does he need creation in order for someone to receive right. this self-communication? And that's why I would love to see, <clears throat> and I see this in Van Til, uh, a doctrine of the Trinity in which God is in mutual fellowship right. with himself among the persons of the Trinity in no need of any other. And then you have communication for for eternity past. You have it there. You don't have to, he's not communicating to someone. He's, he's communicating, the father's communicating to the son, you know, by way of the spirit or the spirit or all three in communion because, well, this, this brings me to, to Tipton's uh, auto theos. It's not Tipton's right, but it comes from Calvin. And to me, the, the uh, runners kind of opens the door for, you know, eternal functional subordination, right? If, if, yeah. if the Trinity in the ontological Trinity, the imminent Trinity, God in himself is uh, exactly, <clears throat> you know, match for match uh, the econ- economic Trinity, how God acts for us, then the son, you know, he came and he was subordinate to the father. Is he eternally subordinate to the father right. is, is, and then are they not, you know, the father up here and he's the original and that's what it seems to me. I, I, I agree. I, I think the same exact thing. Okay. I think this is where he leans heavily on Eastern theology though, because there is a tradition within the Catholic church, small C Catholic church, the ecumenical tradition that allows for this. Mm. And, and I don't think it's, it's as biblical or as tight as it, as it needs to be. And this is where I think Calvin is so helpful on the doctrine of autotheos. Mm-hmm. But when we start speaking of uh, the communication of, of essence of being from father who communicates his being to son, who then might communicate his being to spirit, mm-hmm. you end up with, and then there's the great debate over the schism in 1056 over the filioque, whether the spirit also proceeds from the son or not. And, and the son. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So correction, you know, we have from the father to the son, from the father to the spirit, but then the Western tradition also would say, and the son. Yeah. So that, you know, I I misspoke there. So Ronner isn't trying to do anything outside the ecumenical tradition. Okay. Whether he does is another question, but then, but that, that's the issue. He, he sees the being of God of the father being communicated outwardly as son, as spirit. And then what we see in history in terms of his economy is just what God is in and of himself, which is why I think in a sense, it ends up eternalizing the economy, but it makes for what I think is kind of an unstable or 
or um, a lacking, an incomplete trinity because yeah. there there is this outward focus, but then no recipient until God creates man. And then uh, as man, he can now be the divinely created recipient of what God has been seeking to communicate from all eternity. I think that that is really a really, really good point. Uh, there's a, an argument I've been working on uh, about about this the same kind of thing, because if God is dependent on a receiver, if God's dependent on the radio to pick up his you know signals, then he has to create this radio in order to pick up his signals. He he wants to, he must, uh, he must, if the economic trinity is the uh, imminent trinity, he must uh, share this signal with someone. And so then it makes creation necessary, it makes us necessary. It does if if God is somehow changed in that activity. I don't know what all different Ron Ronerians would say. Oh, on that sure, point. sure. Like, is God different when when people receive the message? I don't know. Hmm. Um, but they might respond uh, to to me in this regard and say, "Well, then, why does God create in the first place at all?" Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, if if God is complete in Himself and has perfect consummate. That's even a misnomer because there's no consummation. He just is perfection. Right, right, right. Perfected beatitude and glory within himself. Why is he bothered to create? Hmm. Well, that's a great mystery. I don't have an answer to that. But (laughs) it's it's uh, it's in God's eternal counsel. Yeah. But I would much rather live with that mystery than than a God who who's lacking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, I don't know if this is the best transition, but I wanted to get into uh, absolute personality a little bit, if we could. Uh, because yeah. it's right here. We're talking Trinity stuff anyways. Uh, I got in a debate with my class uh, yesterday on this because we're talking about divine hiddenness and somehow we got into yeah. God's personality and uh, there's the debate and people were saying, you know, God is three persons and then God is, God is personal. Uh-huh. I said, well, if God's not a person, then stop saying he, stop referring, <laughs> unless you're saying I'm picking out the father this time or I'm picking out right. the son. Right. But we refer to him as he, and you know, in scripture, he's done that himself. And mm-hmm. so I'm not saying that God is one person and three persons the same manner, directly contradictory, but that's the mystery of the Trinity. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to, I'm not going to come down on one side of the unity diversity debate because it doesn't seem like he has, he doesn't seem he's revealed that I want to hold the equal ultimacy. And you, you wrote um, a piece in uh, Poitras's uh, Feshrift on this yeah. point and, and, and talking about uh, Islam. And so I'm wonder, impressed that you, that, you know, <laughs> Dude. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, this great. is really I, I near used, and dear to my heart, this this topic. It's yeah, important. I, mean, I, I used it in a paper that I wrote for uh Dr. Tom McCall last last semester. Um, and I I couched it in some Bavink language because yeah. everyone's okay he with Bavink. Same th- exactly, yeah. which is so strange. People yeah. are so critical of Van Til on this point, but he gets most of all of his ideas on this yeah. from Bavink. And, so and they love Bavink. And I slip it in there and I go, and then here's some Van Til as well. But I think Bobby yeah. even uses the language of absolute personality. I'm pretty sure I found that in a couple of spots. I'm not uh-huh. sure if I quoted that or not, but, um, and I was surprised because, because, uh, talking with, with Paul Maxwell about this and, and he put me on to, to Tipton's dissertation and, and Tipton finds the, the perichoresis from, um, from Hodge, but mm-hmm. It's also the, the same language is also in Bavink. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's also doing the same thing. And so I and think he's that developed totally- that. I mean, just to whet people's appetite, yeah. we, he's finalizing a manuscript. I just worked through it myself and yes. sent it back to him. So that's a much 
improved, uh, and not that this dissertation was bad, but a, but a, a greatly revised and beefed up work is, should be out this year on and this very topic. In, he, and a book, course. The book is coming out. Exactly. Okay. And, and I have a course in the can that's on my to-do list today. I need to finish doing some color correction, but then very mm-hmm. soon we'll have a whole course yeah. on Van Til's Trinitarian Theology. Dude, we've been waiting for it, man. This yeah. is going to be awesome. I yeah. mean, it's right, right here. <clears throat> Like well, this isn't talk. Like I'm yeah. like we have the finished document. He's just reworking some stuff. That's so, gonna be huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you're 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 exactly right on this. And this is where people are so critical of Van Til. And if there's one thing people despise about Van Til, it's the phrase, God is one person and three persons. Mm-hmm. Number one, it's important uh to understand the polemical context in which he's addressing this. And and in the background of what he was saying at that point is uh, is um, Gordon Clark and Gordon yep. Clark's doctrine of God. So uh, some background on this, you can watch uh, some videos. I'll try to send you links. Maybe you can include them uh, in the description or something yeah. where, where Lane was lecturing down at mid America reform seminary, not too far from us and uh, lecturing on this topic. It came up in the, in the question and answer afterwards from uh, prompted by a question by Dr. Venema and then uh, Dr. Strange uh, pitched in as well. It was a fascinating exchange, but, Van Til is addressing the notion that God's essence is somehow impersonal, and which is not the case at all. Because of the doctrine of perichoresis to which he alluded, um, all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, the hypostases, Mm -hmm. they fully and exhaustively indwell the essence. So there's no remainder. Mm -hmm. You ever seen this, you know, diagram of the Trinity where you have three overlapping circles? Yep. As a terrible diagram. Because what it, yeah. what it promotes is that there's a part where the son and the spirit overlap, but the father doesn't. And, yeah. by, you know, every yeah. combination they're in. Uh, but there are yeah. also private parts of the hypostases that are not indwelled by any other. Right. So we, we ought to reject any notion such as that. The only thing truly that the only the only item we may list that distinguishes father from son from spirit is their mode of subsistence. The father's mm-hmm. unbegotten. The son is begotten and the spirit proceeds from father and son. Now, the East won't like that, but, <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't need to get more extravagant than that. But from there, we we develop with the doctrine of perichoresis, a fuller and richer understanding of the Trinity. So I, I believe that within Van Til's polemical context, he was correct. I agree with what he meant and mm-hmm. what his teaching was when he said God is one person and God is three persons. At the same time, I believe it's confusing if you don't understand the context in which he wrote and that immediate context of that phrase, because people hear a person and they immediately substitute hypostasis, which is expected. Mm-hmm. God is not saying, or Van Til, my, there's a slip. <laughs> Van Til is certainly not saying that God is one hypostasis, creedally speaking, and three hypostases, creedally speaking. That is just flat out incorrect, Mm -hmm. would be heretical. Um, Van Til, what I believe is he's saying, and I think maybe a a safer way to speak, which encapsulates everything that Van Til is seeking to promote. And I I believe, I don't know the guy, but uh, uh, I mean, if he was here, I think he'd probably agree Mm -hmm. and would take this editorial point that God is one triunely personal God or the triune personal God. Yeah. And that's what, you know, we're, we're going with for with the title of this, this forthcoming book. We have three hypostases, father, son, and spirit who mutually indwell and exhaust one another so that 
we have the essence of God and the three persons of God, but you can never speak of the essence without considering the three hypostases. And you can never speak of the three hypostases or any single hypostasis Mm -hmm. without fully invoking and understanding the other hypostases and the essence. The essence doesn't exist as a blank being only to be inhabited by three persons, but neither do any persons exist to come to find their existence in the essence. God just is what he is. Mm -hmm. So his essence is, you know, triunely personal. And that, that's why I like the word triune because it, it, it emphasizes three and one at the same time. Yeah. That that's the point. It's a great word. Equal ultimacy, I think is, is what it's all about. And, and a healthy and robust doctrine of perichoresis. That's the uh, mutual interrelation of the persons. I think that gets at it. Don't think, you know, at the end of the day, don't think of three overlapping circles. Mm-hmm. Just you can't conceptualize it really, but always and everywhere, one being, but yet three persons, but there's no no overlap. I mean, yeah. it's full exhaustion without right. collapsing them into one hypothesis. There's always the distinction. And that's the great mystery. Yeah. Well, and and that it does it does not not problematize, but it does make it a mystery. It does show it to be the mystery that he is. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, you know, social Trinitarianism, uh, there's some really, really sharp dudes who write on that stuff, but it's, it's often what you describe that the nature is the divine nature is this abstract and it's instantiated three different yeah. times. And right. a lot of us go, well, how is that not tritheism? Right. And, and then other others go, no, no, the, the divine nature is personal, but then somehow the, the, per, the three are less than personal and you go well yeah. that's like partialism or something weird man i don't mm-hmm. know and so we want to say i'm I'm gonna go equal ultimate you know god is one god is three and it's a mystery like surprise surprise like the whole right. church has always said that's where van till one reason i think he liked the phrase concrete universal which he was yeah. stealing or borrowing from kant and from that tradition yeah but he meant something very different by it because we should never abstract the essence Mm-hmm. We tend to do that. And I believe a lot of Thomistic theology does this as well. I like Thomas on a lot of points. I'm not anti-Thomas, yeah. you know, but uh, I appreciate much of, of his teaching on, uh, on immutability, on simplicity. I have, I have no issues with the conclusions of that theology. I think some of the aspects of his theology are, are severely mistaken. That's, mm-hmm. that's an entirely different conversation, but yeah. sometimes people like to say, well, Vantilians hate Thomas and, uh, and, and therefore that's why so many Vantillians or at least some notable ones, you know, sacrifice simplicity, or if they don't sacrifice simplicity, they sacrifice immutability, or if they don't do that, then they split God into a, an essential God and a covenantal God. You know, yeah. I reject all of that and think that that's, that's, you know, a terrible way to approach the issue as well. And Van Til rejects that thinking too. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we, we can't abstract the essence apart from the persons. And that's why we have a concrete universal, not an abstract universal in the sense that the essence and the persons, they just are what God is. And he always exists that way. So it's concrete in the sense that it exists. You can't conceptualize him as an idea Mm -hmm. apart from his actual existence. Yeah. But at the same time, we can't contain 
his existence to some historical particular because he's transcendent and he's the the necessary precondition yeah. <laughs> of everything that exists. So yeah. I might be taking some liberties with my own interpretation of concrete universal there, but I think those are all, you know, organic ways that Van Til thinks about the matter. And I think for me, at least it's a helpful way to think about it too. Well, and I like, I, I know that language comes from, you know, the, the post Kantians, but, yeah. and, and a lot of people will, will, you know, bemoan that, but I like the, it's helpful if you understand, once you understand concrete universal, you see like, oh, that seems like an antinomy if we want to keep with Kant mm. stuff, but yeah. it's helpful once you think through and you go, oh, okay. And it is talking about, you know, it's still a mystery, but you know, I can think of an abstract man without thinking of Camden. But yeah. you you ought not do that with God because there is one God. There's not right. a category of God who we exactly. can try to fit through. And yeah, it's, I think it's really helpful thinking through that. Um, but when it when it comes to the the perichoresis, something I've I've continually been wrestling through myself, and I just don't have time to really like do it justice, probably in my own mind. But do you can you affirm like autotheos that the son is of himself he he didn't like derive his his essence or being from the father and still hold to eternal generation are those two do they that's a good question yeah i think i think you can i think you need to okay um because we never want to deny i i'm a full supporter of of a uh, eternal generation of the son mm-hmm. um but I th- there there ought not to be some sort of chronological or essential logical I don't even know the word the right word to use in which the son is subordinate for uh, to the to the father in that regard. So there isn't yeah. a communication of essence in the sense that the son is a donation, mm. but. Um, I'm going to pl- I'm just going to I'm just going to leave it at that and say yeah. that this is something that, <laughs> that yeah. needs to be further thought. You know, I think if I if I contemplate this question honestly and publicly, you know, it can yeah. come back to bite me. <laughs> right, totally. No, I hear that too, man. That's why I asked you the question didn't try to say it myself. No, but well, I the, it, it goes to show the point that's right. a tremendous question that mm-hmm. is well worth investigating. It would not be surprised at all if I could in five or 10 minutes, you know, uncover several works that do address with the issue yeah. that, it, that I'm just not aware of off the top of my head, Same, but yeah. that, but that's something that, that needs to be looked into. And I would yeah. love to, to read some treatments on that. Probably a good episode for you, you to have a guest on to talk about that. And maybe yeah. we can have one on crisis center as well. That'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, so just thinking, thinking through Ronner, I would think Ronner would say, because because of uh, insofar as we've interpreted him right here, that since the son and the spirit are communications of the father, then yeah. he that would preclude him from holding autotheos, and he doesn't care probably because that's a Calvinist doctrine, right? Right, wouldn't um, be an issue for him. Right, but for for us, we say, well, um, I I don't want to hold to EFS. Uh, I think that if if the son is not autotheos, and and the spirit too, right? Like the mm-hmm. if if he's not like God of himself, then that to me is opening the door. So then we have this tension of saying, well, I don't want to be a heretic or anything like that, but I do want to think through this stuff and hold it in tension and say, I don't know all of the answers until I can, you know, think through and maybe someday I will, maybe I won't. And I'll just have to hold that mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think what tends to happen with 
the communication of essences, you end up with these logical priorities hmm. of the, you know, the father, then the son, and then the spirit. And what ends up happening when you do that is you end up with the son becoming just a little bit lesser than God because he derived right. his being or or we could say God, the father gifted a being to the son. And without that gift, you know, he would have nothing. And so even and if it's father's, not, And the father's underived. So it's like that, that's what we we're going. Yeah, right. But I think I think at least to to bring us back to parameters for investigation, mm -hmm. you know, if someone were to investigate this more deeply, I think it's helpful at the bare minimum to be reminded that within our tradition, we understand those incommunicable personal properties, the unbegottenness, the begottenness, and the spiration, yes. the proceeding. We understand those as modes of subsistence. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with that phrase, which yeah. you find in Thomas and in you name it, many other places. Those are the modes by which the persons subsist in the divine essence. It's not as if those modes can change. We don't, we're not thinking here in modalism, mm -hmm. but how does the father subsist in the divine essence? Which remember, we can't abstract. Yeah. It doesn't exist out there. And then this comes to be, yeah. but the father exists as his mode of, of subsistence is unbegottenness. And this and the and the yeah. sons is begottenness, and the spirits is a procession or aspiration, whatever word you prefer. Yeah. Again, am am I even answering a question? Because then that itself is a mystery. Yeah. And and that's what is worth investigating and, and looking into any any further. I it's not an answer to the question, but those are parameters that yeah. I would use as a as guardrails to go on attacking the question. I, I love that, man. I, I'm so glad you brought up the, that language as well, too. And and that's that's the difference between theology and philosophy, or, or a difference. And you say, this is how how he's revealed himself to us. And you go, well, well, spiration, like, what is the ontology of that? And you're like, dude, right. let's talk, but, but this is speculation. Let's be careful here. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to stay in these parameters because that's what he's revealed. And I don't want to go on beyond cutting off corners to make it more conceptually easy for me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And again, you know, we, we have language like procession and spiration. We're not just inventing that to make the philosophy work out. Well, right. we're looking at portions of scripture in which, you know, these are good and necessary consequences from what God has revealed to us. Mm -hmm. So it is exegetically based, uh, but we don't, we're not biblicists either. We, at least we shouldn't be where, mm -hmm. well, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, so there must not be one, you <laughs> right. know, so right. you also, you know, in, in my tradition, the Westminster Confession of Faith uses the language of by good and necessary consequence. There can mm -hmm. be good consequences. We can think about Scripture and come up with good consequences from from contemplating Scripture, but they might not be necessary. Right. Um, we're most interested in developing theology that is good and necessary. Mm -hmm. like, these are things that we that could be, but they're also but also Scripture is demanding that they be. Uh, yeah. And and so that's that's what we confessionalize yeah. <laughs> the, good, the good and necessary consequences. If it's merely a good consequence, maybe we can keep talking, but maybe we shouldn't let, you know, yeah. make our ministers subscribe to it. <laughs> Dude, I've never, wow, that's great. I've actually never heard someone split those two and say, yeah, good. And that's, that's great. That's really helpful. Actually thinking through the, those two come apart. Yeah, they, they ought to, because there's a lot of things that I think might be good ideas, but have they, have they, 
could we say they're necessary? And if, if we can't, then, you know, I might believe that might be the, 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 the state of affairs, but I can't, I couldn't uh, in good conscience be a member of a church that required subscription to things that weren't necessary. I just, I just think that would be unreasonable. And, and yeah, and maybe, maybe don't make your whole podcast directed on this one good thing, right? Like, cause, cause that's the thing too. You you get your hobby horse and you're like, this is a good idea. I'm tempted to that and saying, no, this is my, this is my addition to the field. You know, I'm going to change my whole podcast towards this. Yeah. 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 That's, dude, that's very helpful. Uh, Camden, this, this has been great. Do you, do you have like five minutes to talk? Yeah. Uh, um, I wanted just to touch at least on, uh, maybe this is, is not possible, but touch on Ronner's understanding of transcendental Thomism. Mm. Because for those who are familiar with, with Van Til or even Kant, we did an episode on Kant, transcendentals. What is Ronner doing? Like, what is, what does he mean by this? Why would he even take that Kantian language? Um, yeah. For me, I'm like, why would he take that and not go the direction that Van Til went? But right. are you able to explain that uh, uh, briefly? But I'm I'm happy to talk about it. I don't okay. think I'm I'm directly equipped to address this as well as as I might like. Okay. Uh, but um, let's go. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, in a sense, this is kind of an historical point, and to try to understand the way that that theology and philosophy go forth historians often like to group people into schools right. schools of thought it's just it's easier that way mm-hmm. and so Rahner gets lumped into a whole historical category of thinkers of this type and for better or worse they've been called transcendental Thomas mm-hmm. um you know Rahner doesn't espouse that title he was never a member of a club you know <laughs> that, that called themselves that or anything yeah. but it's just this just how things are so the the basic reasoning for this, as far as I understand it historically, was um, in 1879, if I'm not, if my history is correct, uh, the Pope required everybody, ev- certainly every officer in the Catholic Church, to acknowledge that Thomas is in the official philosopher, the angelic doctor of yeah. the Roman Catholic Church. So you don't have an option. Like If you are a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, you are Thomist. You mm. you just are. There's no way around it. Yeah. Now that might be very limiting or restricting to people, especially more liberal theologians, modern theologians who want to transcend. And by that, I'm just using that in a general phrase. They want to move beyond the limitations of this older traditional philosophy. Their mm-hmm. theology is coming head to head. It's 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 bashing up against the philosophy of Thomas. So they want to break through it, but they can't say that they reject it. (laughs) Now there's a second thing that happened in 1910, the Pope issued what was called an anti-modernist oath. Okay. In which every priest all the way up until the fifties, I think had to sign a document that basically said they were not modernists. Hmm. And so you, you end up with these strictures and the way that Catholic ecclesiology works, if if you have to to be in good standing, otherwise you're outside of the church. You can't go to another denomination. Yeah. From, in, from their mi- mind's point, there there are none. That right. is the church. Yeah. Right. You can't church hop in that sense, and get, it's kind of a good thing. But I mean, it, it, yeah. it leads to these other problems mm-hmm. because if you disagree with the philosophy or the theology, you have to find more creative ways to get outside the box. Mm-hmm. 
at the same time acknowledging and giving your respects to the box. Right. You know? Right. And so it, it, it breeds very, it either breeds disingenuous confessional statements, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, yeah, I subscribe to that, but then they don't really. Right. Or it leads to people entirely reconceptualizing the theology and not at all subscribing to what was intended in the first place. Right. So basically this is what happened with, with Thomas, the philosophy was escaped and modernism was rejected while at the same time being embraced because of this, um, this move to the subject uh, that we have with the the substance was, was put into uh, Thomistic language. The substance of modernism was, yeah. Yeah. Or vice versa. I mean that, that, yeah, that the Thomistic language, yeah, was escaped by, yeah, I, I like your way better. Yeah, basically. But I I don't necessarily think that they're they're self-consciously introducing a Trojan horse. Okay. It it's it's more of just a philosophical move in which now they're saying, well, we can agree to these things in, in you know on the surface and maybe even to a degree in principle, but Thomas had no conception and certainly wasn't dealing with the advanced types of questions that started to arise in the in the mid to late 18th century. Yeah. And so you end up with, you know, Kant's understanding of noumena phenomena, which I think, you know, led to a whole different way of approaching church um, councils and church statements. Hmm. So when I read like Rahner's book, uh, The um, Shape of the Church to Come, they, at the end of the, of the Vatican Council, the second Vatican Council, each uh, region, locale of, the universal church was tasked with taking the constitutions and the dogmatic statements and applying them to their specific historical context. So it's like, this is what we've determined for the whole church. Now you all in Germany and, you know, South America, you all figure out what this means in your time, your place. Yeah. And so they were called to instantiate these more universal truths for their own personal context but so, they yeah, started contextualizing their, exactly. their role okay they know but i think yeah. they that Ronner, for one and and i think a lot of people like him they recategorized and now uh, have used some of the basic paradigmatic features of noumena and phenomena to understand all of the church's documents in the mm-hmm. past and this is what maddens protestants because we've come to modern roman catholicism and you'll look at dogmatic statements now and you can show in many places why the church's teaching contradicts itself from the past right now normally you would just say well the church was wrong back then but the catholic church can't and won't say that because Mm -hmm. of papal infallibility and that god would never mislead the church and the church is never wrong we just have this other teaching and then they try to find elaborate ways to harmonize Mm -hmm. Rahner and transcendental thomas of this type have no problem recognizing legitimate inconsistencies or contradictions because these are all phenomenal um, instantiations of a noumenal eternal truth. Ah. So God can, can in a sense reveal his will to the church in 451 and he does it in the council of Chalcedon and the church was functionally the translator that translates 
noumenal lessons to phenomenal language. Uh-huh. So you have the magisterium, the church functioning as that translator. They translate it and you have the Council of Chalcedon of 451. But Rahner says explicitly, and perhaps his most famous essay, uh, which is um, a new, uh, I'm going to get the title a little bit incorrect, but it's a Christology of, uh, for an evolutionary view of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's in a bunch of different collections. He would say, I agree with Chalcedon 451 that it was infallible, that it was an ecumenical statement, but we need a new one for today. Yeah. We need a new Christology for an evolutionary view of the world. By that, he's not just saying, let's take the lessons and contextualize them so that they're harmonious. He will even, I believe, what he's saying is that we need God to speak and reveal in and through the church to express and breathe into our present circumstances, Christology for now. And for him, it's not a problem if the new Christological statement contradicts the old Christological statement because Mm. that was historicized for then. There might be lessons from 451 that carry over to today, but we shouldn't be trapped by saying that, um, that they can never contradict. He says they can, they can just flat out. If you compare them side by side, uh, they could possibly just not congruent. They're, they're not going to be congruent, but it yeah. doesn't matter because you always have the eternal transcendent God whose word uh, is always spoken in and through the church. And the church can speak to its own context in different times and in different places. And it's infallible. It's authoritative when it speaks and to whom it's speaking. But as history proceeds and unfolds, it might need to speak a different word yeah. to different people. Well, so that initially... Uh, you might, the listener might think, well, that doesn't sound so bad. You know, systematic theologians say we need new systematic theologies for every generation because we have different, you know, different milieus that we're speaking in. They wouldn't say milieu, but different yeah. contexts that we're speaking in. Right. But, but he's saying, no, the, the systematic theology would be different and that's okay. But well, it's also content- different from, from our view because these are not just optional teachings. Like if the if the church declares something at, at okay. an ecumenical uh, meaning like this is this is on par, yeah. maybe not directly, but it's on par with the Bible itself. We're not right. we're not talking about well, this is so and so's formulation and under present understanding of God's eternal truth. We're saying no, this is authoritative and infallible teaching, yeah. and so you don't have an option to take it or leave it. Um, also, you you end up with all sorts of other issues. Uh, regarding the the authority of the church and its and its very nature, and it just it it it, it it's it's very it's very problematic. Yeah. I'm just going to stumble yeah. over my words here because I, I could probably yeah. say a million things. Yeah. Well, so thinking thinking back on the um, on Ronner's rule, and and he he wanted God. Well, depends on what he did want, right? That's a a, a different question. But if God is in himself, in his ontology, in the imminent trinity, if he is in, in the imminent trinity, who he is in the economic trinity, I'm not sure how you could have the, the noumena phenomenal gap because the the noumena is the phenomena, right? Like the but how God has revealed himself in the councils, the old councils, is actually how he was. So unless you want to say that the noumena is changing and needs to be reformulated, did, mm-hmm. did he... 
speak about this? Did you did you make sense of this, or yeah, maybe this? Is I don't think so. Um, okay. and and when I'm reading in noumena phenomena, those are not necessarily vocabulary words he's invoking. Okay, and so I'd be open to. I'm always open to critique, but I'd be open to critique on this point. These are in, in large measure conclusions of, of what I'm reading and, yeah. and trying to make sense of how he understands how we can have a new ecumenical, how, how a Christology for an evolutionary view of the world could in any sense be an infallible authoritative teaching right. if it contradicts uh, 451 Chalcedon, but, the, but for him, it's not a problem. Yeah. So, but, you know, Although he's not using the, the language of noumena and phenomena there, um, I still think, you know, for Rahner, you can, you can have that eternal communication of the Father in and through as the Son, I should even say, the communication of the Father as the Son. Yeah. Um, that's not – until it comes to bear in time and space, it's not – you know, it's not as if God is changing because it's yeah. kind of a constant dynamic expression. Yeah. It's a, it's in that sense, kind of almost Bardian in terms of its actualistic yep. nature. Yep. But it, he wouldn't want to, you know, bring in the, the phenomena here in terms of those, those categories. Yeah. Dude, you know, that, of, that, of a critical subject. That makes sense. It's the time and space. Once it gets yeah. into time and space, the, right. and it's a different time and space, you know, you right. never step in the same river twice. Yeah. That's helpful. Okay. That's really good. That's how I understand it. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm mistaken, but. Well, uh, Camden, weren't you, weren't you in like a, a Ronner society or something? <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, I joined the Catholic Theological Society of America for a time. And I've since my membership uh, has lapsed because yeah. I hadn't been attending meetings and it just ended up, you know, I, I, I wasn't finding personal benefit in my, my, my circumstances have changed. So I, sure. I, I wasn't able to attend the meeting and it just ended up becoming a bill I paid for no reason. Yeah. And so I decided, you know, as in terms of a family budget to, to <laughs> let my membership well, lapse, yeah. um, I went to a meeting and, part of like a, they have different subgroups under the CTSA. The CTSA is like America's one of their largest, you know, Catholic theological learned societies. It's, it's like ETS, but on a, you know, bigger, you know, beef it up with Catholic theology and all this okay. other kind of stuff. Sure, it's, sure. If it's, it's a helpful way to think you go to meetings, their papers delivered, you know, it's that kind of thing, mm -hmm. but they also have these subgroups within the CTSA different interest groups. And one of them is the Carl Rahner Theological Society. So I wanted to be part of that so that I could interact with other Rahner scholars and discuss and receive the journal that published its papers and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so being part of CTSA is kind of a prerequisite to, to be a member of the Carl Rahner Theological Society. And so I, I, you know, I interacted with scholars in that regard, but I went to one of their breakfasts um, in part, uh, in, in, uh, as part of the CTSA proceedings for that week. And, uh, it's just uh, so stark and I enjoyed it. The people were lovely. I had a lot of great conversations, but some people were giving presentations on Rahner's Christology compared to Hunzer's von Balthasar. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about how von Balthasar was like too conservative and some of these other things. And I'm thinking, well, what am I, if von Balthasar <laughs> is too, so conservative? And then they started to just just trash and they just were exhibiting just disdain for the penal substitutionary nature of the atonement. I mean, they, they had, they were angry 
about it, that it existed and that people would hold to such theology. And I just felt this fire just burning in my heart and in my belly. And I wanted almost nothing more. I restrained myself, but I just wanted, I literally felt like, and I had this thought at the moment, like I need to just stand on the table and just proclaim the gospel because these people don't know Mm -hmm. what Jesus has done. They don't understand what's at the very center, the heart of of what Christ has done for his people. And that that's what it is. And, you know, I let that pass over time and, you know, I can still interact with the folks. If I have questions on, on Ron or need to talk theology, I don't need to be part of the breakfast to do that, but um, I appreciate their charity toward me and, and um, kindness. Yeah. But it was a, an eye opening moment for me just to see how, this isn't just a different branch of the Christian religion, you know, to go back to what Machen said in his book, you know, Christianity and liberalism, the yeah. Christ, liberalism is not another type of Christianity. It's a different religion altogether. Right. right. And whatever they believe and whatever I believe, they're not in the same category. Yeah. I'll put it that way. Even though on the surface, it, it might seem that way. Well, I, I'm, I brought up the point because, it's so instructive for, for us. It's instructive for us as Protestants and instructive for us as reform folks, as uh, Vantillians, as Calvinists, because you, you're, you're, you were a, a preach. Well, well uh, you're in the OPC and <laughs> right. you were uh, the, I don't know all the terminology that the head pastor. No worries. Sure. Well, sure. I was, yeah, I was pastor. I'm a minister. That's our office. Minister, so in the yeah. OPC, we hold to, some people are not going to like me saying this, but we hold to a three office view. You have ministers, elders, deacons. I view those as kind of concentric circles. Um, and so, you know, I still am a minister, yeah. but my call changed. So ministers can perform different or serve in different functions at different times. We have pastors, evangelists, and teachers. And that's, do I think that that's a necessary consequence from scripture? Uh, that might be one of those where, is that necessary? Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not necessary, but yeah. It helps us function. So um, I was pastor, full-time pastor, you know, preached twice on Sunday, did all the things that you would expect pastor to do. But then when I started transition to work full-time at Reform Forum, the church called me as an evangelist. So I'm still a minister. I'm still serving uh, our church. I still serve on the session, except my day-to-day function is different. They don't pay me a salary. I'm paid by Reform Forum. And I don't preach every week. I only fill in, you know, when the, when our pastor, our new full-time pastor is, is on vacation and needs someone to fill in kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So minister, Yeah. That, that's all helpful. So this is really instructive for us because you're an OPC minister and uh, the OPC guys go hard, man. You guys are like, <laughs> this is, this is what's up. And we're not, we're not the modernist PCA folks, you know? No. And, uh, <laughs> well, or PCUSA, that's where I came right. from, you know, as right. a kid. Yeah. Well, right. I've heard, I've heard them. I've heard a joke even about PCA, which is like they're <laughs> brothers. Right. But it's like, okay. But so you could, I'll let you easy- tell a joke. And not yeah, me. yeah. 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 You could very easily be, uh, look, we have it right. And this is what's up. And obviously everyone else is wrong, but instead you, you say, yeah, I think we have it right. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a minister here. But I'm going right. to go find out what they say. And you join this society to figure <laughs> this out, you know. And I just think that's so instructive for us. If you want to critique someone, know what they say, read read it, take the really take the time, find out what right. those people say, and then still hold firm, you know, still still critique it, but critique it knowing what you're talking about. And that's why I found that when when I heard you talk about that, I wanted to share that story here 
because it's so instructive and it takes a lot of work. You spent hours and hours writing and reading and talking with people so that you could write. And this is, um, I mean, they make you write like a hundred page book, like it's it's short, but the the amount of man hours that went into this is insane, but it's worth it. You know, it's like, we, we do need this stuff. So go out. I, I get, I get uh, crap for talking so much about simulation hypothesis, but <laughs> I want to know what... bliss. Have you seen bliss on Amazon? No, I haven't. Well, you'll be, oh yeah. You're I did. I did. Bliss. Yeah, I yeah. Like one in the morning. I couldn't sleep. Yeah. 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 That was good. It's so Owen Wilson and Selma Hayek. Yeah. I have my thoughts on that movie, but uh... yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I thought it was all right. I, whatever, but, um, but I go in and I, and I talk about this stuff cause I want to know what, what do their poets say? What are they sure. saying about this? And what do they really say? And how can we really critique this? And yeah, it's a silly thing, but my the guys I disciple talk about it all the time. It was enlightening to me as part of my PhD, what Westminster does, and a lot of places do this, especially in the American system, uh, which is heavy on coursework, whereas mm-hmm. the European system is mostly you write a longer thesis or dissertation and you don't take courses, or at least yeah. you're not required to. Uh, two of my courses had to be external courses. So one, I took a temple in the philosophy department. It it was supposed to be on continent. It was on continental philosophy, but when it was in the catalog, um, it looked like it was going to be kind of a survey. We're going to go through a bunch of different thinkers. And I was hoping we would deal with Heidegger because Heidegger is a huge influence on Rahner. Okay. Um, But it ended up being all on Foucault, which is now proving to be quite useful regarding critical race theory in the postmodern issues that are at stake within all that discussion. So I'm actually reaping benefits from that. Whereas maybe there was a time where I I was interested, Mm -hmm. but I was like, what am I ever going to use this for? The other course though, was a course on Karl Rahner at uh, the Catholic university of America down in DC. So every, I think it was every Wednesday for the spring 2010 semester, I would take the uh, Amtrak from 30th station in Philadelphia down to uh, what was it? Uh, Main Street, whatever, the main uh, Union Station at, yeah. uh, at, at at D.C. And then I'd catch the Metro over to CUA. And I did that for a semester under a guy named John P. Galvin, not Calvin, but okay. uh, John Galvin, yeah. who was a very well-known Ronarian scholar. So if since I was doing Ronner and Catholicism at Westminster, I, I really felt it important to at least do an external with a world expert and learn all I could. If I couldn't go to a Catholic university, and I think it was wise that I didn't, and, you know, all told for my personal needs, um, that I would at least do an external with Galvin, which I did, but that was utterly enlightening. I mean, my time at Temple was as well, but to go to a Catholic university to interact with Catholic scholars and to be sympathetic and you know, not to, not to shirk or hold back Mm -hmm. on my own thoughts, but to communicate in a way that, you know, was, was charitable, but also understandable to, to people coming from an entirely different viewpoint. That was this formative. And I would encourage other people to do that insofar as they're able, but from their perspective, I mean, where I'm coming from is unheard of. Right. And when they found out I was reformed, they said, Oh, you're Carl Bart. That's reformed. Right. And, and that, that by example is the only the closest they could get to any one of my heroes other than Calvin. But Calvin is so early and prior to the enlightenment that people reinterpret Calvin however they want. So I was like, well, you know, more like Calvin. They're like, Oh, but how do you read him? I was like the way that he wrote and you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> if I could go back and attend his church and just think the things he thought, I'd be pretty happy. And that just yeah. blows their mind. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but that just goes to show we need more ecumenical interaction. I'm not huge on, uh, on doing so for the sake of some grand ecumenical retrieval yeah. project. You know, I'm right. not, I'm not looking for um, reunion or anything, but right. we need to get out there and interact with folks and sharpen our understanding and seek to communicate that to the whole church and even to the, to the, or an apostate church, if they're out there, you know, yeah. that's just part of being a scholar. Yeah. But it, yeah, often we want to sit in our own echo chambers, tell each other, you know, how the ideas we already hold are great and right. reinforce one another and then uh, cancel anyone that doesn't agree right. with what we think. <laughs> right, man. We all, yeah, we all like doing that. And it's, like you said, it's so much easier. It's so much easier to do that. Everyone just listen to me and I will tell you everything that's right. And if you disagree, you're out. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Well, dude, Cameron, this has been so huge. Thanks for all for all the time. You're so busy. Yeah. You got all this stuff going on. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, one more time. Can you, so yeah. can you plug, how can people find uh, Reform Forum? The simplest way is just head over to reformedforum.com. Org. That's reformed and F O R U M dot org. And uh, from there, you'll find links to everything. If you, if you want to get in touch, you know, scroll to the bottom of the page and you can uh, sign up for our email newsletter or over on the side, you can get our, our print newsletter, but there you'll find all the courses, podcasts, publications, you name it. That's the simplest way. And also a contact form to get in touch with us if you'd like. Okay. Awesome. Mm -hmm. and, and if you guys are interested in more uh, Carl Rahner stuff, uh, check out this book. Uh, yeah. It's in the Great Thinkers series. And, you know, there's there's all sorts of footnotes too. So if you're if you're interested in Carl Rahner, like you can find the books you need in here. And uh, Camden has been so nice. I, he's let me just pick his brain randomly here. But there's something different about reading it. And he spent all this time. Uh, I, I, I like to continually uh, refresh my audience that when someone writes their dissertation, they're so deep into this stuff that to ask them years afterwards, Hey, can you recall this for me? Is like, you know, it's, it's really nice that you would do that. Um, so to so go buy the book and read the book, it's, it's a good book. Thank you. I appreciate the time Parker. And you know, if people have any questions in the book contact form is another way to, to get in touch, but yeah, let's keep up the conversation. This has been really fun. Definitely. Awesome. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, this has been Parker's Pensies. We could talk about this more Lord willing someday we would do, we will, but uh, that's going to have to do it for now. As always, all glory to God.